0: Uh, We're continuing today in our preaching series through the Gospel according to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 14 today. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there with me. I'm calling this sermon, Eating with the Enemy. And uh, I think it'll be apparent enough where that name comes from. Mark chapter 14, we're concerned principally with verses 12 uh, through 21 today. But I'm going to start reading just a little before that in verse 10. Uh, I know there's a lot of standing, but if you're able to do this, I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of the Gospel. Mark chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, Jesus, to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, He took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is My body. Then He took a cup, and after giving thanks, He gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated? This is. uh... Uh, an interesting passage in all kinds of ways. And I'm, I'm sort of excited to preach it because some of the insights that come out of it, I think, will be very helpful for us in practical ways. And that's not, maybe that's not always the case with my sermons. I'm not sure how practical some of them are. But this one is quite practical. And it's interesting to me that Jesus is now entering into a time in which His death is becoming imminent. This is the last night that Jesus would be a free person living in Israel. He will be arrested on this evening. He'll be tried during the early morning hours. He'll be crucified and dead by the next afternoon. So this is an intense time. And Mark has increased the drama in some ways by telling us what is going on with Judas. That Judas has decided that he's going to betray Jesus. We talked about last week that part from Mark of what precipitated Judas' betrayal was some disagreement with Jesus over what the new kingdom is to look like and what the Messiah is supposed to do. And he seems to not agree with Jesus. And so he begins this process of getting ready to betray. And so we're entering into a time in which we can ask the question of Jesus, what does it look like to love our enemies? What does it look like to pray for those who persecute us? Jesus has said it. This has been one of his teachings. Not so much in Mark. Mark is going to show us, whereas Matthew tells us. But we ask the question, what does that look like in real life? And here it is. Jesus' enemy is there with him. One of his twelve. Now, some of you maybe have been in this situation. I pray that not all of you have, but I suspect that most here have. The, the moment in which somebody that you spent time with, that you've invested in, you thought was a friend, you find out that they have been conspiring against you behind your back. Talking about you. Now, it's easier, it's actually harder to do it completely behind someone's back today. It seems like it always gets out on Facebook, right? Everybody finds out eventually. And there was a time where you could keep that secret for a really long time. And then years later sometimes, you find out that this person who you had entrusted yourself to, you had invested in, you had spent time with, maybe even shared some private things, was outspreading that stuff about you behind your back. Some of you can recall those memories. You remember how it felt. Remember how you felt about that person? What you did in response? For some of you, the betrayer was one of your own children who stole a credit card or money. How do you go on in relationship with someone like that? What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to reconcile? What does it mean to love a person who has done that to you? Who has betrayed you? Jesus is going to, I think, give us a way forward. And some of it may be surprising. It certainly was to me as I dug into this text. But I want to open with a proverb that I think summarizes the experience Jesus is walking into, and some of us have walked into too. Proverbs 25 verse 19 says this, Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. I'm going to read that again. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. Now, when I would read that that passage as a young person, the twisted ankle always resonated with me because I was doing sports and things like that. But the older I get, the tooth thing speaks more. (laughs) You'll see what I mean when you get older for those who are young. And the rest of you say, boy, it's just beginning, right? You've taken a bite of something and had that sharp tooth pain. Do you ever quite bite there the same again? Right? You start chewing on the other side. You avoid that thing like the plague. It's the same thing, right? When you rely on someone who's unfaithful to you in a time of distress, it's like biting down on a painful tooth. It's like trying to walk on a broken or a sprained ankle. The first time you step and you feel the pain, you never step quite that way again. This is where Jesus is. He knows that his betrayer is one of his twelve. And he's heading into the most difficult time he has faced in his earthly life, knowing that his enemy is one of his friends. What's he going to do? What does it mean to love our neighbors? Maybe we can learn from Jesus what it means to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And when Jesus fellowshiped with his betrayer in this passage... There are three kind of points I want to make about it. First, he was careful. We're going to talk about that first. Second, he was candid. And third, he was cherishing. We'll see how we proceed. But I want to start with this idea of Jesus being careful. Look at verse 12 with me. I don't know if you've paid a lot of attention, if you've slowed down. I've read over this a lot of times, and I never quite noticed just how strange the passage really is. So we know that Judas wants to betray Jesus, and what he wants to do is tell the authorities where Jesus is, because they don't want to arrest Jesus in the crowds. He's very popular. They don't want a riot. They don't want anyone coming to his aid. So they're not going to arrest him in the temple. They're not going to arrest him when he's teaching people and he's surrounded by a crowd. They want to do it when he's alone. But how often is he alone during the Passover? Well, really only at night when he goes away to stay someplace. That's where they want to know where he is. But, I mean, there's no GPS. There's no satellites looking down. There's no uh, national security agency. There's no tapping of phones or anything like that. I mean, there's no streetlights. I mean, how are they going to find him? Jerusalem is flooded with pilgrims. It's Passover. People have come from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire, to come back to Jerusalem for this feast. It is packed. They don't know where he's staying. We find out that he stays routinely in Bethany, but not always at the same house. And so they need one of his disciples to tell them where he is so they can arrest him when nobody's watching. And Judas has now agreed to do that. So now we know that one who knows about Jesus' movements is waiting for an opportunity to tell the chief priests where Jesus will be. And look at what Jesus does in response to that reality. This is verse 12. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat at the Passover? So this is the key. All twelve are there. They're all asking. Judas is listening. That's important for us to realize. And he's listening. Where are they going to make preparations? Jesus has slept outside the city up until now. But on Passover night, the custom was that they had to eat it in the city of Jerusalem. So this night, he was going to be in the city under the jurisdiction of the Jewish authorities and in close proximity to the Romans. So this is the perfect opportunity. Can you imagine Judas listening? Yeah, where are we going to make these preparations? Where are we going to be tonight, Jesus? Well, listen to how Jesus responds knowing that Judas is there. So he sent two of his disciples. Mark doesn't tell us who they were. Luke will tell us that this is Peter and John. But we can guess that it's probably not Judas, right? And, uh, of course, Luke tells us it certainly wasn't. But we could guess that. So he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to this address, that's where we're going to be. No. Of course not. Then Judas would know where they were going to be. So this is what Jesus says. Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there." So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. So Jesus entrusts the preparation to two of his disciples. We find out in Luke it's James and John. And they're not told where they're going. They're just told to look for signs. Go into the city. You'll see a guy carrying a water jar. He'll meet you. Follow him. Whatever house he goes into, that's where we're going to have the Passover. Speak to the owner of that house. Ask him if the upper room is ready. He'll say, yeah. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's making sure Judas doesn't know where it is. When Jesus is in the presence of His betrayer, He is careful. He is careful. Notice all that mystery and intrigue. Two unknown named disciples, some guy carrying a water jar, entering into a house, some owner that's already have things prepared. I often advise folks who are giving or loaning money to people. Every now and again I get asked, should I make this loan? Is this appropriate to do? And I always say the same thing. And some of you have heard this because I've been saying it for years. Don't ever give or loan anything you can't afford to lose. And what is bound up in that, uh, that kind of advice is this idea that you don't have to trust somebody to be loving toward them. And Jesus with Judas, whatever it means to love our enemies, Jesus is not conflating love with trust. Now this is a difficulty because when we are in our own lives confronted with people who are not trustworthy, who have proven to betray us in the past, who have stolen from us or have made false promises or haven't delivered on what they say they're going to do or whatever else, or have slandered us in the past or spread around something intimate or personal about us that they said they would keep private, but they went to the next person and said, I'm sworn to secrecy so don't tell anybody but, and right there they lied to you and betrayed you and stabbed you in the back just by doing that. Like, when when that happens, sometimes those folks who want to, to be forgiven come to us and assume that we are supposed to trust them again, or else we haven't really forgiven them, right? That love requires trust. But there's something here in this passage that Jesus, when He is encountered by a betrayer, He is careful. It is very clear He does not trust Judas, I think the story is going to show that he loves Judas. But he does not trust him. And so Jesus does not want this Passover meal interrupted. This would have been the perfect time to arrest him, right? He's in an upper room, private. It's just he and the twelve. Nobody could run away. They could get them all in one shot, trapped in a room. Would have been perfect. But Jesus does not want to be betrayed on that night. Not in that place. He wants to eat his Passover with his disciples. And so, knowing Judas, he deliberately obscures the facts of where they'll be, so Judas cannot turn him in. So Jesus, when he is in the presence of a betrayer, does not conflate love with trust. We're assuming Jesus is going to love his enemies. That's what he's told us to do. But apparently loving his enemies does not mean necessarily trusting them. Secondly, Jesus is candid. Now, this is a, I don't know if this is surprising to you what happens here, but it is surprising to me. Look at verse 17. When it was evening, He came with the twelve, and when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray Me, one who is eating with Me. They began to be distressed and say to Him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. So here we have a situation. This is what's surprising to me. I would have thought that if Jesus knew that Judas had intended to sin against Him, had already sinned against Him and gone to the authorities and said, I'll betray Him for the right price, I'll just, I'll get back to you when I know the right time. Like, you'd think Jesus would have what? Gone to Him personally, Right? And had a personal conversation with Judas. Tried to reclaim him before the deed was done. But none of that happens. Jesus is very candid in the whole group. He spills what he knows. I'm going to be betrayed. And it's one of you. Now he doesn't say who it is. But he says that it will happen. It's not until the Gospel of John is written. That any of us know in the Gospel history. That Jesus did in fact tell one person. That Judas was going to be the betrayer on this night. Before it happened. He told the... The apostle John, which John testifies to in the gospel. But nobody else knew who it was. So maybe that's surprising to you, maybe it's not. But Jesus doesn't go to Judas. Instead, he exposes the conspiracy right in front of everybody. He tells them all that he knows what's going on. But he protects Judas's identity. Now, Jesus missed a prime opportunity to protect himself on this night. We've all done this, right? When somebody has something negative to say about us, they start spreading slander about us in one way or another. What is our instinct? It's to get support for our position, right? We go to our friends and we tell them what's being spread about us and we try to set the record straight and we try to get people on our side of the truth so that there'll be protection against the slander and protection against the betrayal, right? I mean, that's what we do. Jesus had a perfect opportunity. How different would the story have been if he said, Judas is going to betray me tonight. He's going to leave this room and tell them where we are so they can arrest me. What would have happened? The disciples, I would imagine, would have rallied to Jesus. They would have restrained Judas. They might have had an intervention to try and stop it. They would have started a conversation. But Jesus does not protect himself from his betrayer. He doesn't trust him. He makes sure he doesn't know where they're going to be eating the Last Supper. But neither does he use the circumstance to put all the eyes on Judas and get him crucified instead of Jesus. Jesus protects Judas by keeping his identity a secret. But he does not hide the truth of his plot. You see this? Jesus is careful, but he is also candid and honest But in that honesty, he shows as much care for Judas as he does for himself. And third, Jesus is cherishing. I had originally said charitable, but I don't like what that word implies. He cherishes Judas. The first way he does that is by not mentioning his name. But the second is much more important. Look at verse 22. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread... And after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never drink again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this is the institution of what we call today communion, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus taking the elements of the Passover Seder in Judaism and reinterpreting them. So the bread that was bread of haste, that represented bread without corruption for the Jewish people, bread without sin, he reinterprets it and says, this is my body, broken for you, Matthew tells us. And then he takes the wine that was taken after dinner, that represents the sacrifice that God was willing to make to see his people redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And he reinterprets that and says, this is my blood. Now in every one of the gospel stories, Judas is present for this meal. In every one of the gospel stories, Judas is offered the bread and he is offered the wine. Jesus offers himself to Judas as he does to every one of the twelve for deliverance and salvation. We celebrate that meal once a month here at New Beginnings on the third Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Judas was there. Jesus didn't exclude him from that meal. He still offered himself to Judas. So here Jesus invited not only His disciples who intended to be loyal. Now the truth is, most of them turned out not to be loyal when all was said and done. But they intended to be loyal, the other eleven. But He didn't just invite those disciples who intended to be loyal to Him, but Judas too, to eat of the bread and drink of the wine, which were to represent His own death for them. In a real and tangible way, Jesus offered Himself and forgiveness to His enemy just hours before that enemy would betray Him to the authorities. And eventually, that betrayal would precipitate in Jesus' death on a cross. This is another saying. I don't know why my illustrations are sayings today. It's another thing I say often, and it's this. I like people a lot more when I'm honest with myself about my level of trust for them. I like people a lot more when I'm honest with myself about my level of trust in them. I find that there's nothing more aggravating and infuriating than putting more trust in someone than you should and being disappointed that they lived up to what should have been your expectations. When we know a person, we can know what to expect. Jesus knew what Judas would do with the information about where they were going to eat the Passover. So He made sure Judas didn't have that information. But Jesus also knew that Judas knew where they routinely went to pray. And He knew where they would go after this Passover. They had done it three other times. That they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives and pray. Jesus also knew Judas knew that. And yet Jesus chose not to change His behavior. And so Jesus, knowing who Judas was, put him in a position to betray him. So Jesus may not have trusted Judas, but He still put him in a position to hurt him. Jesus controlled the hurt, but He still put him in a position to hurt him. Jesus chose the betrayal He was willing to bear. And it was because it was God's will that He be handed over to the authorities. But He still allowed Judas to betray Him. And yet, on that same occasion, offered him himself. So here I think, and I might be reading between the lines a little bit, but I think Jesus offers Judas a way out. An opportunity to back off on his plan without anybody knowing who it was, who had made these designs. There's every possibility that Judas could have received that bread and that wine, changed his his plans, and not done what he intended to do. And by keeping his identity secret, it gave him the chance. But by exposing his plot, it put him on notice that Jesus knew what was going on. Judas, of course, decided to carry out his plot. And the rest of the story we'll get to as we get there in this gospel. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. How do we move forward with those who have intended or done harm to us? How do we build proper boundaries to protect ourselves from future harms while still extending Christ-like charity to those who have harmed us? How do we forgive? How do we reconcile? What does it look like to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Sometimes I think that we have that conversation about ISIS. Because ISIS isn't here. It's really convenient to talk about loving your enemies, people who live half a world away, and you're not going to encounter them, or it's unlikely that you will. I mean, if somebody attacks right here in our neighborhood, we might have a chance. But it's kind of hypothetical. But Jesus pushes this right in our face. When you're talking about loving our enemies, you're talking about ISIS, you're talking about people that our nation might be at war against, but you're also talking about the last person who smeared your reputation. We're also talking about the last person who betrayed your trust. We're also talking about the last person who sacrificed you at their dinner table, talking about you behind your back. We're talking about that person too. How do we love these people? What does it mean to be the people of God? And Jesus may not answer all of those questions, but like Jesus almost always does, I think he gives us a way forward. I think he would say, in his behavior anyway, be careful. If someone betrays you, you can't trust them. That doesn't mean you can't love them but you can't trust them trust them trust is earned forgiveness doesn't suddenly resurrect trust reconciliation doesn't suddenly resurrect trust trust is something that grows over time to live with our enemies we must not conflate love with trust we have to be careful But secondly, we also have to not hide the truth of what is happening. We have to candidly talk about why we don't trust. Can you imagine Judas on that night saying, I'm going to betray him, I'll tell you where he is, I'll find out, I'm going to be having the Passover with him, and then we have a routine that we go through. I'll I'll let you know where he is and so Judas is there and he comes into the room and, and, they, and the disciples ask the question maybe Judas let it we don't know who asked it but the disciples ask the question where are we going to have the Passover and Judas is waiting and he's listening and Jesus gives these cryptic things find the guy with the water jar enter into the house all that stuff and Judas is going what, why is he doing it what, what, what can you imagine Judas some of you have experienced these people he'd come up to Jesus Jesus do you not trust why aren't you telling us where it is do you not trust us anytime somebody asks me if they don't trust me I know a knife is coming I know it. (laughs) And Jesus candidly, by his surreptitious way of getting them to the Passover and then by his conversation at the Passover, makes it very clear. I've been betrayed. And there's one of you I cannot trust. Matter of fact, there's more than that, but we'll get to that in, in future weeks. So he's careful with his enemy. He's candid about having one but then he cherishes that person. He makes the same offer of forgiveness and reconciliation to Judas as he does to the other eleven. The fact that a person is an enemy who has hurt us does not justify disfellowship for Jesus. He includes Judas in this meal. Would you include your enemies? (coughs) What Jesus did and didn't do when he knew he was going to be betrayed has to be instructive for us. And the more I read and ponder the life of Jesus, the more I realize how much His life really does reflect mine. Sometimes uh, it's, it's easy to make Jesus kind of God, and so He lives a life we could never live, and walks a path we could never walk, and it's easy to kind of dismiss Him when it comes to the everyday stuff of my life. Because, you know, well, that was Jesus. This is me. But the more I read this story and live into it, in Matthew, and in Mark, and in Luke, and in John, I realize that most of what I experienced in my life, Jesus experienced too. And the reason I want to say that's Jesus and not me is not because He's not relevant, but because I don't like His answers. I don't like to think that that's something I have to do. I like to think that's something Jesus did for me so I don't have to do it. So Jesus was great with Judas, then I don't have to be great with my enemies because Jesus did it for me. I mean, that's Jesus. But what Mark puts forward for us is Jesus as an example of what it means to be a disciple of God. Maybe easier for him because he was God, but somehow I suspect being fully human made it hard for him too. But I noticed that most of Jesus' experiences are just like mine. They don't all happen in the same order, but they're all there. And betrayal is certainly something I understand. Not just by being betrayed. I have been the betrayer. And maybe some of you have experienced that too. But we have to somehow learn that Jesus is showing us not what it means to be God, but what it means to be human. God became flesh to show us what it means to be human. He did not become flesh to parade around how easy it is to be God. And so Jesus is our example of what humanity looks like. We already knew what God looked like in some ways. But what does it look like to be human? And it looks like being careful with our enemies in this scene. It looks like being candid about having enemies. And it looks like a people who cherish those who have harmed them. Or who are going to harm them. We have to learn from Jesus what it means to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. One of my favorite scenes in uh, The Passion of the Christ, which is a movie that does some theological things with the Jesus story that I don't think is fair to the Scriptures. We can talk about that at another time. But there is a great scene where I think they nailed something that's in all the Gospels. And it's this moment in which Jesus prays for those who are crucifying Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Mel Gibson, when he filmed that, had that happening while they were nailing the nails into His hands. And that was a powerful scene. Because I think in some ways that's what it looks like to pray for those who persecute us. That's what it looked like for Jesus. You'll have opportunity too. You will be crucified too. Maybe not in the same way, but it happens. Social media makes it easier, it seems. But it will happen. Perhaps we can learn to love folks we do not trust. Perhaps we can even sacrifice ourselves for someone who resents us, who has plotted us harm, who has tried to undercut what we're trying to do in our lives, at work, wherever. Certainly we can learn from Jesus that we must eat with our enemies. I'm going to read a psalm that is so familiar that it seems strange to even read it. It's often read at funerals. And I've often read it at funerals because it's tradition, and I'm not one to buck tradition, but I I think that it's one that should be read on other occasions, and I'm hoping that on this occasion of the last Passover in which Jesus was eating with Judas, it will have new ears for you and maybe even new instruction. It's Psalm 23. We're going to conclude with this. I want you to just imagine, as so many of the Psalms work, uh, you can imagine... Jesus saying this at different times in his life. And almost every psalm works in that way. And you can read these into your own life too. You too will live out the psalms. You might not always like their conclusions, and that will show you areas of growth. But you'll find yourself in occasions that the writers of the psalms found themselves in. And I think this table supper with an enemy on a night that the worst was going to happen to Jesus, and he knew who was going to do it to him, and one of his own friends, this psalm somehow gains power. Psalm 23, it says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for His name's sake. If we could stop there, it'd be the greatest psalm ever written, right? But it'd be almost meaningless to most of us. Verse 4 Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Have you ever thought that the meal that is most honoring to God is one in which we fellowship with those who have harmed us? Have you considered that? I haven't, not because it's not apparent in the scriptures, but because I don't much like it. But the wedding supper of the Lamb, across that table from us, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, will be all sorts of people who have been forgiven, who have probably done monstrous things, some of them. Our enemies may very well be at that wedding supper, sitting across the table from us. And we have to learn here how to treat them then. Heaven is not only for our friends, though we often think that the new heaven and the new earth will be a family reunion of sorts where we'll get together with lost loved ones, at least the ones we liked. Not that strange uncle that nobody wants to talk about, but the ones that we liked. We're all going to have this great table fellowship. But the truth is that it'll be a gathering of those who have harmed each other, who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, who have sought reconciliation and forgiveness from their God and have offered themselves in repentance to each other. Do your table fellowship look like that in this world? Well, it must. Jesus shows us we must eat with Judas. We don't have to trust Judas. We don't have to lie that there is a Judas. But we must eat in fellowship with Judas. We must offer Jesus to him. This is our challenge, I hope, for the new year. And I pray that this year, each of us, we'll find one Judas to offer Jesus to. One Judas to cherish. We will never be the people of God. We will never be the people of God if we fail to live into the life of Jesus. Jesus had one Judas, perhaps. Most of us are cursed with more than one, and some of us have been Judas. Judas but there is salvation for all of us who would turn to Jesus and reconcile with each other. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for showing us again the quite challenging road that it is to follow you. Some of us have felt these pains so deeply that even to think of the person who inflicted these wounds causes us anxiety and fear and trepidation and anger. Heavenly Father, we don't ask that you take the wounds away or that you justify the evils that have been done, but would you help us to respond to the Judases in our lives the way that you did. And for those of us who have been Judases, Heavenly Father, in the lives of others, would you help us to learn a way other than that of Judas to accept what You were offering, to step aside from our plans of harm, and to find a way to join again the Twelve and to be Your friend. Heavenly Father, we give these things to You. As we enter into this new year, we trust that there will be many opportunities to live out the life of Jesus again this year. Would You help us to have eyes to see when we have opportunities to be You in the world? Would You convict us in our hearts when we make poor decisions? And would you lead us back into the way of holiness? Heavenly Father, help us to learn to forgive. Help us to learn to love. Help us again to learn what it means to be the people of God. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.